Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast. Uh, Daniel Bell, who has 30 years experience in landscape design, starting in 2004. He's a pioneer of a successful eco-sustainable vertical gardens business. Um, he's going to explain how that works. It's really easy to do, apparently. And he's just shown me before we started recording the tools needed. Um, I'm really looking forward to, to watching what he's doing. So if you're listening to this on Spotify or Amazon, um, I suggest you go to YouTube uh, or the journal biophilicdesign.com so you can look at the video. Um, he's worked in cl uh, challenging climates from London to Iran, America and Australia. And um, yeah, Daniel, many thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, pleasure. Great. And what if you'd like to start by telling us a little bit about yourself, um, you know, what you do and uh, maybe what got you into plants as well? OK, right. Well, um, I've been, I think, fortunate enough to have grown up on a nursery from, from birth, one could say. Um, so I've always been surrounded by plants. Um, I started working for my father or with my father um, from the age of around 10. That's when I started propagating plants. Um, and um, I've always known that that was something for me, working, working with plants one way or another. Um, when I was 18, I started my own business um, that was designing and maintaining and building gardens in the Buckinghamshire area, Buckingham, Buckinghamshire and Berkshire. Um, that carried on until I got to around 30 and then moved to Sweden. Mm. with my now wife um, we moved there and as soon as I moved there that's when um, I was uh, contacted by a friend who uh, saw a TV program on Patrick Blanc um, who is you say the inventor of the vertical garden and, um, and my friend suggested that I should get in contact with him as he had a building that he'd like, he would like to cover in plants so that's where I ended up or started off with vertical gardening by meeting Patrick Blanc in Paris a couple of times really interesting chat and um, my friend Billy who had a, a pub in King's Cross came along with me and we decided to embrace Patrick's approach and cover the pub in King's Cross on the quite I say a little bit grotty part of the Caledonian Road and cover the 260 square meters of the pub in, in plants and, um, and that's where it all started um, and then since then I've been working with my vertical gardens, but also still with other landscapes such as the public realm, um, renovated a quite large castle garden in the Stockholm district. Um, and so I balance it out with both, but vertical gardens I work mainly with, but I still work on, you say, normal gardens as well. Fantastic. Uh, can you describe for our listeners what your installations look like? Okay, um, my installations, I like to think slightly more natural approach. Um, I like to create, have as much diversity of plant life as possible. Um, I would like to avoid as flat as possible. Um, some clients try and rain me in a little bit and try and have one or two species, but I really don't think that is what vertical gardening is, is about. If that's the case, then we should put, put vines up. Um, Virginia creeper, for example. So that's not what I do. So I like to create as much diversity as possible. I still experiment with plants. I think that's always important, like with all gardening. You never stop learning. So I keep on trying different different varieties. Um, so yeah, a natural approach, no straight lines. Um, that's quite important for me. Whenever in my planting team are planting, I try and give them a little bit of creativity, a little bit of, let's say, a free reign. But it's always no straight lines. 
that's yeah. really important. Fantastic. Um, I mean, sustainability as well is really important to you, isn't it? Um, I mean, can yes. you tell us about the recycled materials that you use and why it's... Yeah, well, it's the most low-tech system. Yeah. There's quite little manufacturing involved. If I can hold up what's yeah. in what's, what we need to do... Um, there we are. Okay, so I've got a rigid backing board here, which is this. This, this is uh, plastic. We can use recycled plastic. We can also use a cement board as well, which is good for outdoors and uh, extremely durable. Um, and to that, we staple on this rolls of recycled clothing, um, and it's two two layers thick. Um, would have an irrigation pipe in the top, dripping, of course, and that is it. And then the tools we need. We need um, a sharp um, standing knife to cut a slit in and create a little pocket for our plant. Okay. And then we need a staple gun. Yeah. Where we would staple the plants up snugly. <laughs> and that is it. <clears throat> and it might seem many, many architects do question it and think, well, it's just too simple. They want more manufacturing, more. But, but, and I say, I, I take my inspiration from Patrick Blanc and within my studies, and I have found out without shadow of a doubt that this system is the most sustainable. Yeah. It provides me the chance to grow as wide a range of plants as I possibly could. Um, we don't have compost in it. We don't want compost. I think many people in horticulture understand that compost is a short-lived product. It's something good for a nursery, for growing a plant very quickly, but it wants to get out of that compost into uh, the ground or away from it as soon as possible. Um, so what we do, um, we take, a, say, a plant like this here, this fern, I would take, this is the root clump here. Yeah. I want to... It's okay to do this now. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> uh, made a mess on the floor, but so I reduced the root as much as possible. Oh, I see. So, because it was in a pot before, so you've taken the plant out of the yeah. pot. Yeah, I mean, take take away as much of that compost as possible. It's really important. Right. If you do, if you don't, I mean, I've tried being, we say, lazy and think, oh, well, let's just put put the plants in without without doing that because it takes yeah. it takes a few minutes to do that. Yeah. But I found when we've done that, the compost eventually goes quite uh, really uh, unpleasant, sort of crumbly, grainy texture. Mm. And when it's wet, you can see it creates an anaerobic condition, and the plants don't like it. Okay. We want these roots to get into this felt as quickly as possible. So they'll grow. They actually basically grow into the felt, so they become one. They yeah. Say, you, they they create a union with the felt with that recycled material. Yeah. So. Let's see if we can. Okay. We oh, can look, it's it. little, oh, you're putting a little pocket. Oh, it's all snug. Oh, it's like you're wrapping it up. It's so lovely. Yeah. So I think I have to put this down and staple it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, <laughs> That's so cool. So basically, you're. Stapling around the the, the 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 bum of the plant, as it were, um, to kind yeah. of like make it to sit snug. It's important that it's nicely snug in there. Yeah. So the root is 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 well in connection with the recycled clothing, but yeah. the root system obviously 
underneath here will mm. spread wherever it wants to go and oh. it's not been restrained into this pocket i mean i've seen sometimes we see these sort of plastic cassette boxes where they plant in the individual pockets with with compost mm. and i just find that people just re replacing on a regular basis so it's so low tech so simple but and um so if you look around the world now i mean that's obviously patrick blanc started um some of his installations are 30 years old um still going providing them maintained of course like any garden that's quite quite critical mm. um my oldest one now must be 13 years old okay. and again still still going strong um <clears throat> Um, some of the plants that I've used, I mean, there's a plant in my heptacodium. Now, that's probably the biggest one that I've used, and that's got to over three metres. Right. Um, and because the roots can spread throughout the system, then it creates a perfectly good anchor. So, so the weight is spread. Um, yeah, so, so that tells you a little bit about yeah, how it works. It's yeah. very simple, and it's fun. Yeah, I'm just going to ask you actually. Yeah, so what kind of plants do you use? I mean, you so you mentioned sort of you know the variety of you know sort of colours and textures, and um, I mean, and you said just describe describe this sort of you know huge plant that you've you know that's still mm. there sort of thing. So um, yeah, can you explain? So I mean, you mentioned as well before dwarf trees. I mean, that's so cool. I mean, I mean, I'm yeah. sort of doing that. On well, yeah. So I mean, there's an old saying of like right plant, right place, and of course that's always something that one should be thinking about. Of course. Um, so when I moved to Sweden and, and I started um, trialling vertical gardens there, starting on my home, now that's, a, that's an extremely challenging environment. Sweden in the summer is probably warmer than, the height of summer is often warmer than the English summer. Um, and then the winter, well, the years when I was trialling, I was trialling down to that minus 22. Wow. So that's, that, that's extremely, so the difference between say minus seven and minus 22 is huge. It's not just frozen, it's a really, and that really, um, it really divides what, what you can use and what you can't. But that was really interesting. And then I'll be look, I was searching along the west coast of Sweden, looking, seeing what's growing out of rocks. And then I soon discovered that there's a quite an obvious group of plants, such as certain junipers, pines, and then dwarf birch, betulinana. Um, you could also use Betula pendula, which um, absolutely could be fine, but I thought Betula nana was a bit more suited. Um, and uh, that was also extremely interesting. Yeah, and I managed to get that working. Extremely challenging. I lost loads and loads of plants. And my wife thought I was completely bonkers bringing in lorry loads of plants and covering the house with them. And then we had to keep replacing. Um, but eventually I got there. and. Um, and found a group of plants, I mean, things like Hydrangea paniculata, um, Stephanandra, um, uh, some Philadelphus, things like that, that will grow happily and, and they'll tolerate the root freeze. That was really a, a real challenge for me. And so by embracing the, the Scandinavian climate, then that's given me good opportunity to work in Iran and Azerbaijan, which is again, extremely challenging climates. And that's really, really exciting. And now we've moved back to, we live in Hove now, um, I'm perhaps doing a little bit more, more active in London, then that feels quite tropical, and dare I say it, easy. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say it, but yeah. <laughs> Certainly a lot, a lot of, there's a lot of wide range of plants that you can use. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned Azerbaijan and that, I mean, what, what's the sort of, um, 
I mean, the climate change there. I mean, I mean, the climate sort of very variety. I mean, what? How does? What? What's yeah. The well, on that one, we went, I went out twice. It was an interesting project. It was Trump Towers in, in Baku. Um, we must have been, um, we must have been maybe around 100 metres up in the air, um, looking over the Caspian Sea. Um, and there, my main challenge is Baku's an extremely dirty, maybe that is quite, quite a dirty city in terms of the black dust from construction and what have you that's blowing around. Um, but I found I found plants such as Lomisula pileata, um, Luzulas did quite well up there, um, and um, let me think what else we were using up there. Again, some Stephanandras might not sound very exciting or exotic, but it's very important that it's the right plant that will tolerate these uh, these really challenging conditions, and um, it worked pretty well until someone. Um, um, the, the owner of the of the building was uh, put into prison for oh. some political problems. So Trump Trump Tower Baku, I think, is shut down now. <laughs> <laughs> we were going to look then. I was just going to say though the um so some of the plants that you you've been you know you you used there where it was like lots of um you know sort of grit and dirt and stuff that was coming off construction and things. I should imagine that's quite useful then when you're in London, for instance, or you're on areas where yes. you're on motorway sort of facades and stuff as well, where, where buildings, you know, because yeah. I, I speak to some kind of um, urban planners and they're saying, well, yeah, you know, but it depends, you know, we can't plant that because we can't put things there because, you know, it's like there's, there's too many, there's too much pollution and it will just de destroy. So actually there are, there are planted solutions that you can create a sort of biophilic city if you wanted to. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think um, one of the most sort of, we said, polluted areas where I've worked is, is right on Piccadilly, um, where the particulate matter predominantly coming from buses and well, tyres, you know, there's an awful, that's an awful problem there. But Piccadilly is really extremely chaplicated, as you well know, um, and a lot of pollution there. And when, when we work on that, on that vertical garden, we actually have to wear masks, or we prefer to wear masks because it just doesn't feel very nice just to be breathing in the air for such a long period of time. Yeah. Um, but what I found there, plants like Fatsia, Hebe, um, Sambucus, um, uh, Junipers working well there, Heptacodian, Lavenders, Solanum, um, that does extremely well. The, the potato vine goes like crazy. So there's plants there that obviously need to be strong and vigorous, vigorous enough to grow out of that polluted um, that particulate matter and some plants that aren't strong enough they just get suffocated yeah. and so I've found that but I found there's a, there's a really good um, a good group of plants that will tolerate it. Mm. That's amazing and you've you've obviously worked obviously my office used to be in Piccadilly and I know what you mean about the pollution there um, I mean you've created these vertical gardens using this system yeah with this yes yeah so that's, that's fantastic that's really great. That's completely sustainable. It's helping clean the air. It's creating a beautiful space. Um, I think that's. I think it's just wonderful. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And um, again, listeners who are um, who are interested in looking at some of your um, your designs, I'm going to put links to your uh, website and stuff on the on the web on on the journalbiophilicdesign.com and also on the the spiel for the uh, podcast series, but also some images so people can come and have a look. Um, yeah. I mean, what's been one? Of, obviously, you mentioned the uh, the one in uh, the, the Trump Towers one, but what's been one of the sort of more remarkable installations that you've done that you might like to share with us? Yeah, the one I'll 
I thought I'd talk about was one that I did in Camden that yeah. would have been about 12 years ago for mm. a, a couple as a private house. Um, they originally, the architect, thought about having a, a vertical garden in their uh, lounge area. Um, as soon as I got to the house, I could see the opportunity of going from the lounge to the outside area where they have just glass, glass doors. And I suggested it and they just said, yeah, just go for it. And that's often how it works. They were lovely people, completely trusted in me. And so we, it was about maybe about 30 square meters in total. So not huge, um, about 15 inside, 15 outside. Um, but there, um, there, once the wall was established, um, one journalist found out about it, a lovely journalist called Annie Getty, and wrote about it in The Guardian. Um, and then it went from there. It's been in all sorts of publications all around the world. Um, it's, it's given me many opportunities from that, from people seeing it, from, from it being published. Um, and um, yeah, it still, still gives me pleasure when I look at it now and I, and I see it. And it's another case of just a huge diversity of plants. Many plants, or a number of plants, um, we could use on the inside and on the outside. And I'll, I'll show you one plant here, which um, this plant, this right. is um, Telexema Mind Your Own Business, is the common name of it. Um, so that's one, that's a plant that we use on the inside and on the outside. And it's a funny plant. Many nurseries will not grow it because it, they can't get rid of it. It grows, it contaminates all the other pots. But it's funny, one of the, one of the most, it's one of the most favorite plants I, I use for, for the clients. They just love it. So we had that on the inside. It's very, 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 very soft and it grows kind of wherever it wants. And we use it on the outside. And that goes from the inside to out, out to in, really good. And I think many landscape designers often talk about bringing the garden inside. And that's a classic example of it where we did it quite, quite literally. And, um, and yeah, it became ever so, so well known. And it's given me a lot of opportunities, which is quite, I was quite, quite took me by surprise. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful. I've seen actually you showed me the photographs of it. It looks absolutely um, mind-blowingly beautiful, and I can imagine living in that space is really uplifting. And you know, the whole outside-inside thing, where your eyes mm. are drawn naturally to you know to take that outside. I mean, it must be a beautiful, restful, restful, inspiring space. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah, and like I said, they um, we're fully trusting, and we've got yeah. a huge diversity of plants there. One of my favourites on there, you've probably seen some images, I do use quite a lot of fuchsia, which a lot of people sometimes roll their eyes and think, what? But no, it's a fabulous plant, especially for vertical gardens. They yeah. seem to they love, they love the, the moist felt that they grow in, and they're just going they're, they're flowering from May right through to, often December, it was a London garden. Oh, um, yeah, as long as they just need, they'll provide them isn't a frost, they'll just keep going. Brilliant plants. Oh. Beautiful. It's such a huge variety of them. Mm. Um, and in fact, we just completed a, a vertical garden in London yesterday. Mm -hmm. And there we've got about 10 different uh, varieties of species fuchsia, yeah. which is just starting to emerge. Yeah, absolutely lovely. I think one thing that I've from talking with you now is the, the actual variety of plants. It's like it's not just one, two, three species. This is like you've got a whole beautiful diversity of textures colors plants that we've know we recognize you know so we've got that sort of also from a psychology point of view things that remind us of things when we were kids and that kind of stuff that you can just naturally incorporate in spaces and and, and like for instance like you said the fuchsia and, and things i mean they're so delicate and architectural and kind of mm. have a sort of oriental kind of look and then you have a sort of softer 
um, the mind your own business thing you mentioned, and you know, the junipers, which have that really interesting smell as well that they have. So I should imagine, mm. you know, actually being immersed in a, in a space that you've created is, you know, is a, is a real yeah. sense. Thank of, you. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it's like forever changing. That's all. That's also, that's also important. And sometimes, you know, this is a case of the strongest surviving. Sometimes some of the plant will push the other one out, but that's all part of it. And yeah, um, yeah I'm happy with that. But it's, it's having that variety in there. So you can just sit and just look, look around and it's, uh, it's really relaxing. Um, yeah. I had an, another favourite project was our dining room in Sweden, yeah. where um, I covered the entire dining room, obviously apart from the windows. In, in plants and that was a great great place to be absolutely yeah uh, yeah it's lovely and it's good for the VOCs as well isn't it it's good for like getting rid of all the giving us oxygen too so <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely yeah. it's huge win-win um well um is there anything else oh no I do want to ask you as well what kind of sort of buildings can these been be installed in I mean you've obviously touched on obviously Trump Towers and and uh, being in Sweden with extremes inside outside sort of bricks you know all that kind of thing um, I mean, it sounds like you can probably put it on more or less anything. Yeah, well, what, what we do, the, 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 the structure of the vertical garden, mm. um, the structure, yeah. would obviously wouldn't be sitting directly on the wall. So we put like a frame on first. Yeah. So this is away from the wall of the building. So yeah. there's no issue of getting moisture into it or anything like that. There's okay. always there's ventilation behind. So it can be used pretty much on any building really, I'm trying to think where, where you could say no. It's very lightweight, it's about yeah. 25 kilos per square meter, which in engineering terms is, is very, very lightweight. Yeah. Um, I've used it in the past on a particularly ugly facade where they had a lot of ducting and all sorts of pipe work that was really messy and they're just trying to work out how to hide it. And this, this turned out to be absolutely the most cost-effective way of doing it. So I love to think that you know, I, I find I really struggle when I see buildings in London being torn down, mm. an office block that's only 15, 20 years old because it's deemed old or whatever. Yeah. Um, why we couldn't be doing more of this as keeping the building and adding a new life to it by putting a, a, a garden on there. Um, and that could e easily, so if you've got an, a building that does look dated, I mean, there are plenty of buildings that were thrown up in the 70s and 80s and probably earlier that aren't so pretty to look at. But I don't see why we couldn't, rather than just pull them down, cover them in plants. Um, I would, <laughs> drop of the hat. But, um, um, so, yeah, I'd like to say where you can't do it. I mean, even obviously indoors, we've done them in um, Heathrow Airport, where there's no light at all, no natural light. But of course, as you all know, you can add natural light. That's easily done. Mm -hmm. So it, it could be, you could be doing them in an underground car park. Anywhere. Obviously, you have to re create the create the right light and um, conditions, but that's quite easy these days. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I just I love the idea of that. Just I, I I think if anyone's listening here who's um involved in um urban renovation or just in you know um in construction, then this is a really lovely option. You know, if you're doing a renovation of a building or you know thinking about tearing them down, you know, let's make them sustainable. You know, let's let's create some beauty in in a space and and um yeah, you know, embrace what we've got, but add beauty add add some add some nature which is all great for like you know the sort of all, all types of well-being with the whole biofit design um is there anything else that you would like to add daniel um um i think we seem to have covered it quite well um 
uh, yeah, I just I, I go on and on about the diversity, you know, and I think I've done that, and I think that's important. That's for me. What's the most important is how simple it is. Yeah. Relatively, wait, I say it's not cheap. In the, the 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 budget for it is not 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 as bad as one might think, mm-hmm. um, and it's proven itself quite well over the last thirty years yeah. that. Um, that, that using these old recycled clothing technique really does work and lasts. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's a really fantastic thing that you're saying. You're using using recycled materials. It's eco friendly and it's got just benefits all around. You know, I, I think it's really good. And you're saying you're not using, you know, compost and, and more plastic and stuff. Mm. So that's fun. It's really great. Um, yeah, really good. Um, so, well, really a final question that I ask everybody <laughs> who, I, who I clobber on this, uh, on this, on this podcast. Um, if you could brush the world with, with like the sort of magic brush of biophilia, what would the world look like to you? Well, I thought a little bit about it and I would say simply no straight lines. Thank you for listening to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast.